0: Hi, I'm Dr. Shiloh,
1: and I'm Dr. Scott, and this is
0: LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast.
1: Each week, we explore the intersection between psychology, the criminal justice system and entertainment.
0: Today, we are back with an episode on the forensic psych topic of sovereign citizens.
1: Welcome back, everybody. As we promised in part one, we realized we just had way too much information yeah. to try and cram into one episode. And and we're still not being completely comprehensive of how big and also how potentially dangerous this particular phenomenon is. But we're back with part two of our Sovereign Citizen series. Hopefully there have been no liens taken out on <laughs> properties yet. I guess I'm lucky because I'm not a homeowner. Oh, I barely, well, great. You know, it's I'm debt free and own nothing. So <laughs> they'd have to go look for me, I guess awesome.
0: Yeah, here we're going to dive into all of this. I hope we gave people ample time to digest the the foundation, but you're right. It could have been so much more. I mean, there's ties back to Morocco with people of color who are sovereign citizens like Just so much more we could have gotten into that. It's kind of nice that today we just really get to focus on the research and some of the criminal aspects of this. But getting to our episode last week, it was episode 175, our vintage case, Murder in Lana Turner's Mansion, in which we covered the fatal stabbing of Lana Turner's gangster, stalker, coercive, controlling boyfriend, Johnny Stompanato, at the hands of her daughter, Cheryl Crane. Please check out that episode if you enjoy our our vintage storytelling. So for today, please, we would highly encourage you to go back and listen to part one, which was episode 174. There we covered all of the foundational ideologies for the sovereign citizen movement. And just as a recap, sovereign citizens are individuals or groups in the United States who adhere to a fringe legal theory asserting that they are not subject to the authority of government entities such as federal, state, or local governments. The movement has its roots in a range of beliefs, including various conspiracy theories, and especially more as this movement evolves, misinterpretations of legal documents, and the rejection of established legal structures. And it is now deemed an extremist movement by the U.S. federal government.
1: So today we're going to continue on with the research and some of the big criminal cases associated with this movement. So we were able to find some research on this particular movement from mental health professionals. It's relatively new within the last decade, and it really kind of reminded me of when we started out years ago with our exploration of the incel movement there was no information at that time and now there's just scads of information and interest in the incel community mainly because more and more incels were becoming involved in attacks so same thing is happening here with sovereign citizens but again There's some being the operative word as in minimal, but I was glad to hear that researchers indicated the need for additional research beyond their own. That's very important. They're not saying, "Okay, close the door. There's nothing to look at here. They're saying, no, this is really needs to be kept open.
0: Yeah, it's interesting as you kind of make that link back to incel movement that it's almost like there's these little pockets of people with their ideologies and we don't start sending them until they come to the attention in some way. And usually that's negative and has to do with violence and their crossover with the legal system. So as violence increases and people think that's the answer to projecting their ideologies and their movements forward, I guess that's where this crossover happens with psychology. Right. So I first just wanted to talk about a study that kind of looks at assessing potential for violence and we have talked about this actually in our episodes with incels because now they're starting to look at that and they're starting to develop scales that look particularly at radicalization and how the radical ideologies then perpetuate violence or does it you know sometimes we find that they might have these really wild ideologies But they're actually just kind of sitting back behind their computers touting all of that rather than acting out in the streets. So to assess the potential for individual acts of targeted violence within the sovereign citizens movement, Chala and Lucas in 2019 applied the Terrorism Radicalization Assessment Protocol, which is also known as the TRAP-18. And this assessment tool combines threat assessment and psychosocial factors related to lone actor violence. Their study involved 58 individuals associated with the sovereign citizens movement, and we're looking at these individuals between the years of 2004 and 2014. The results indicated that individuals with higher TRAP-18 scores were twice as likely to engage in violence compared to those with lower scores. So there were six warning behaviors and four distal characteristics that were identified as significant predictors of violence in this context. So this is really nice because, again, you know how much I love risk assessment tools and use them a lot when I was looking at sex offender recidivism. But this is we just want to highlight this study as a short and sweet way to say you can kind of look at some factors to then see what potential violence is going to be perpetrated by someone that maybe comes on the radar a threat assessment manager or, you know, someone in your position that's kind of assessing folks that are creating a little bit of chaos out in the community. But we want to then shift into kind of looking at mental health evaluations, especially when these cases do start to cross over in the criminal courts. And mental health evaluation has often been requested in cases involving sovereign citizens due to their seemingly odd and disruptive behavior. I mean, I could see a judge just kind of Not knowing what to do with that, they might be educated on what a sovereign citizen is and how they're going to act in the court, but they have to keep this concept of, okay, are they competent enough to stand trial or what have you. However, four studies on the topic suggest that the majority of sovereign citizens are not mentally ill. And are, in fact, competent to stand trial.
1: I'm just going to interject here that I think that's really interesting because that is we're going to keep coming back to that for today's episode to the point where I think that the researchers, as this progresses, are starting to actually question like, well, what do we mean by mental illness? Totally. Right. Yep. So and competency. Competency is actually very clear bullet points. And we'll we'll talk about what those bullet points are. But you could be wildly psychotic and still competent to stand trial.
0: True. So it's, it's like forensic psychologists are starting to sit back and go, should this be such a black and white evaluation? Or should we be entertaining some of the gray area that we haven't really stuck to before when making a diagnosis? Or, or maybe even do some of the legal definitions have to be rewritten to account for some of these ideologies.
1: It seems like that's where this is leading. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we do need to continue as we move forward with more. Maybe there's less crime overall in the U.S. I mean, all the stats point to actually Mm -hmm. a decrease in the regular types of crime, but it seems like there's an increase in mass attacks and in this sort of individualized, radicalized behavior. And if there is this increase, we need to get on top of it. We need to be proactive rather than reactive in terms of our legislation and the way we evaluate people in the community.
0: Yeah, certainly. So two evaluators, Pytick and Shemowitz, in 2013 analyzed two cases of sovereign citizens referred for mental health assessment and found both individuals competent. Parker, later in 2014, reported on nine cases, including that being a sovereign citizen alone does not warrant a mental health diagnosis or an incompetency judgment. And then a 2018 study by Paredes et al. supported these findings, emphasizing that most sovereign citizens are not psychotic and can stand trial. So the research that we have is supporting that they're not mentally ill under The legal terms and criteria that we currently have.
1: Right. So, again, in the final summary of the research that we found, research that strongly indicates the need for additional research, the sovereign citizen movement is described as appearing, quote unquote, perplexing and indicative of mental illness. But the current research indicates that the majority of its members are not yet within our current parameters diagnosably mentally ill or more clearly unfit to stand trial. So what the paper does not say, and I understand why, is that an in-depth look at the spectrum of delusional beliefs within any society has to be considered. So understanding what those distal factors are, like you were talking about in The Trap, the, the motivations behind their extremist beliefs remain an area that warrants really significant further investigation. So researcher George F. Parker examined court-ordered competence to stand trial evaluations involving defendants who adhered to sovereign citizen beliefs in his case files. So this series of nine evaluations conducted between 2003 and 2012 revealed that individuals with sovereign citizen beliefs generally demonstrated the ability to comprehend legal proceedings and offer assistance to their attorneys. Okay. And folks, I mean, I know we've probably touched on this before, but those are really two of the four pillars of competency, right? Right. You have to be able to assist your attorney. And that means if you're combative, like Mm -hmm. maybe you're not fully mentally ill, but you're completely combative and you will not cooperate with your defender, that's a problem. That is considered incompetency. But you also have to understand the proceedings. And I want to say something here about the need for constantly evolving as mental health evaluators is I have not been in the position of the evaluator. However, I have been present during evaluations in the jail setting where we're trying to restore competency to an individual. And just because you can get someone to parrot back to you, what you have said to them About the procedures of the court does not mean that they understand it. Yeah. It really is not enough. But our systems are overwhelmed, they're overloaded, they're overworked. And these are the foundations that we have. And I think they're pretty rocky. But there you go.
0: Yeah. I mean, you and I have both dealt with some very, (laughs) to put it lightly, uncooperative clients that have been mandated to see us. Could you imagine being the evaluator? With a sovereign citizen where you are appointed by the court to do this evaluation, how (laughs) frustrating that would be, I guess, just to like the back and forth that we heard in the last episode. Right. I mean, I wonder how those actually turn out.
1: And that's so interesting to me that you point out that as an example, Shiloh, because you're completely spot on because the back and forth is with someone as a sovereign citizen with someone who absolutely does not believe in what you're doing does not believe in the system why would they contribute to helping in their defense when they don't believe it's a legal proceeding anyway Right, and that's something in working with sex offenders that you know, for the the more psychotic of them, or the more truly diagnosably mentally ill of them, that became problematic. But mm-hmm. the ones that were aware, you know, like the the child endangerment images, right? Somebody that comes in that had nine thousand images, they know they're in deep yeah, shit, of course, and they they know that their future does not look good with sovereign citizens, it seems like there's a whole other level of challenge for an evaluator.
0: Yeah, I, it just would be, I wonder if there's some point in the, the court proceedings where they just kind of like, okay, I need to give up all of this to just kind of go along with what's happening because it's happening with or without me. I don't know, that would be really fascinating to see. Because yeah. even when you're talking about working with an attorney, it's like, why would they work with an attorney if, again, like, usually it's, if that person is representing the state or what have you, why would they acknowledge any of it and not just sit there with their arms folded?
1: Exactly. I know.
0: Well, there is a case involving a man named Richard Uola. He is a self-proclaimed sovereign citizen who faced sentencing for his involvement in terrorizing police and bank officials in upstate New York with counterfeit bills, all in an attempt to halt the foreclosure on his home. During his recent court hearing, he surprised many by acknowledging the need for therapy and confessing to a quote-unquote delusional disorder that he had become aware of during a jail therapy program for substance abuse. This case had garnered national attention, including a segment on 60 Minutes, which explored the extremist beliefs of sovereign citizens. But despite Uola's newfound revelation about the absolute absurdity of the sovereign citizens movement's beliefs, Judge Thomas McAvoy remained very skeptical. Prosecutors argued that this was an attempt by Uola to minimize his charge, but ultimately it led to Judge McAvoy ordering a psychological evaluation. So here's someone that is calling it a delusional disorder, but it sounds like everyone's wondering if he's just sort of malingering to try and get off the charges.
1: Right. You know, you get exposed to a lot when you're in treatment. You know, it's one of the things to use an example of when we have to hospitalize children Mm -hmm. and put them on a 72 hour hold here in California. One of my biggest concerns is if that child has never been in a psychiatric hospital setting, they're going to go in with kids who have been in and out of the hospital multiple times for a, a wide spectrum of reasons. And unfortunately, the kid is going to learn some techniques. They're going to learn, you know, what to say to get attention. They're going to learn, they're going to learn some manipulation. Not always, but I have seen this in the past. You know, the big thing here and what you were talking about with Ulola is the idea that he said, I have a delusional disorder. When the reality is, is that people with delusional disorders don't think that they have delusional disorders. They have, they have rigid, fixed beliefs that are not changed. Even our best treatment currently is working with a low dose of an antipsychotic where the individual doesn't ever fully shake it, but they go, well, I'm just not as convinced as I used Mm to be, right? Mm -hmm. It feels like they they can open up to the possible alternatives of what might be objectively true. So what there is controversy about is the impact of mental health challenges in the area of sovereign citizens. So In that example that Dr. Charlie was speaking of, Uloa's assertion does highlight an aspect of these beliefs, a tendency towards a thinking pattern that molds or creates a worldview around a specific set of beliefs that is markedly dissimilar from the population at large. And the idea that a small number of people relative to world population, right, they feel that they have the truth and then they are willing to violate laws as well as engage in acts of vengeance, is strongly bordering on delusional. Like other delusional belief systems, sovereign citizens believe, or at least they claim, to possess hidden knowledge of the law that is purposely concealed from the general public. And then in flooding courts with what is now called paper terrorism, they may believe that they are liberating themselves from what they perceive as the shackles of modern government or and looking at this subpopulation very critically, it's likely that while some are delusional or delusionish or delusion-esque, <laughs> others are much more likely to be opportunists with a criminal mindset and a heavy dose of narcissism and maybe some paranoia as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think especially the ones that are like crafting some of these pseudo legal documents, that's like... right prime soil for con artists, (laughs) but also like kind of what you're talking about there. And then what we mentioned in our last episode is this mental health issue or defense mechanism called magical thinking. So individuals subscribing to magical thinking, believe that specific words, rituals, actions are going to influence events in the physical world. It's not unlike a wizard assembling ingredients for a spell and sovereign citizens sort of string together legal terms, court case quotations, and other language and symbolism, aiming to achieve immunity from laws and try to find this freedom from debts and obligations. Or, you know, we even covered where they're trying to establish their own currency or courts or law enforcement agencies. And when unsuccessful... They're often told by, you know, maybe their mentors that the failure is due to not using the correct phrasing or filing the correct document. So to me, this is very similar to what we've seen before in cults or even MLMs, where if you fail, oh, it's your fault. You're just not trying to push hard enough or sell hard enough, rather than it just all being bullshit from the start.
1: Right. Right. That's always the excuse. And we see a lot of that in prosperity gospel, even, Mm -hmm. you know, which can be considered a cult by some. But the prosperity gospel is if you're as a Christian, if you're not rich yet, it means you're not being a good enough Christian or giving enough money to the church or so on and so on and so on. But look, in the interest of taking a clinical approach from a, a wider angle, exactly where do you draw the line in a belief system versus delusion? when we're looking at as clinicians, we look at bizarre versus non-bizarre as in could it be possible or is it probable? And yet with as Carl Sagan proposed in his book in the 70s that I think he called it the demon haunted world is that in times of high stress, the population tends to swing back to a tendency towards magical thinking or cultish beliefs or beliefs in the paranormal. So what is going to be considered bizarre today might not be considered bizarre tomorrow. Yeah. A perfect example of this is that, you know, whatever is going on in aerial phenomenon over the last few decades, we had the Area 51, UFOs, all those crazes. We have a huge like entire media that's built around sci-fi productions, which I love, by the way. And then we're told this is escapist, or then we have people that have some kind of experience. And some of those people that promote that they have been abducted or had these things, whatever happened to them, they were traumatized. Don't know what it was. Clearly, people have been traumatized. But is that a bizarre delusion to think that you viewed a flying saucer or that you were abducted or probed or experimented on? Who knows? Because now our government just released information within the last couple of years of like, yeah, there's some shit out there that we don't understand. And it kind of flew (laughs) under the radar because they released it during COVID, right? Of course. So not saying that there are little green men up there, but it now lends to, well, maybe there is stuff that we don't know about. So it gets really hard for people, I think, who may have a predisposition to this type of thinking. So in doing the research for this episode, we found such great stuff, even though there's indication for further research needed, There's some really good presentations out there that we're gonna link in the show note. And I highly recommend this YouTube video of a sovereign citizen presentation that is featured with Dr. Alan Newman, and he is the chair of the Department of Psychiatry at California Pacific Medical Center. He does a really great deep dive into the sovereign citizen movement by framing a a huge background and everything that leads to why this is happening. And he himself is a forensic psychiatrist. And with what I would call a really impressive history of evaluations, believe me, there are some mental health clinicians our peers out there that I would go, mm, yeah. I think you should take a I think <laughs> you should take a back seat right now. <laughs> Newman is not one of them. This guy is like up there with Reed Malloy, and I think he's even been associated with Park Dietz, who is a little bit controversial right but right This guy really knows what he's talking about, and one of the things that he says is that one of the main factors is you have to take the culture into consideration. Again, one of those distal factors that you were mentioning earlier. If you don't know the culture, how are you going to take into consideration? And he uses as a broad example to start this discussion off, Jared Mm Loeffner. So Jared Loeffner had sovereign citizen beliefs. Jared Loeffner was severely mentally ill and continues to be severely mentally ill with what is reported to be not very successful treatment in the prison system. And he points out this example of an individual with florid, severe psychosis. And this is the person that shot Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords in Arizona. After his arrest, and then the evaluation, exploration of his background, there was a lot of talk about his very odd speech patterns, odd grammar very strange communications like he could be very coherent and organized at times but then completely decompensate and he also had fixation on conspiracies you know a lot of things about the illuminati and i would add a fixation on speech because this was one of the things that struck me when he shot gabby giffords he got really angry that she did not have a response to his question and his question was What is government if words have no meaning? Oh, boy. So for some people, that would seem like a throwaway thing. As a clinician, it's not a throwaway thing for me. There's a lot just in those collection of words that he is interpreting things wildly differently from the general population. And not only interpreting, he's interjecting and interposing his own belief system in that. How can you sit here and talk to me as a politician when words don't mean anything?
0: Right?
1: right. Yeah. Very I mean, how
0: do you come up with an answer for that?
1: Yeah. And she didn't. I think in that one, she was like, I don't really. She was very polite and she right. sort of deferred very good political. And then that wasn't that wasn't the. The event where she got shot, I believe, I think it was a follow up. But for some reason, he had fixated on her Mm -hmm. for some reason for not answering this question. But Newman goes back, he goes about sovereign citizens. He says, look, they're not hearing voices. They're not disorganized. So let's compare them to known subcultures. Is this something that other people believe or is it idiosyncratic, right? And from an evaluation or a diagnostic view, we have to explore the process that they are utilizing. How do they conclude that their beliefs are true? And it's not just enough to say that they have a fixed false belief. So people on the gang stalking spectrum have this fixed false belief without really any evidence at all, right? But with the sovereign citizen movement, it is a different type of phenomenon. How is it that they believe what they believe in this moment?
0: Right, right. So it sounds like what Dr. Newman was trying to do to s- highlight Lofner's case is to say, look, this is someone that has a severe diagnosis of schizophrenia and also happens to have sovereign citizen beliefs like that can be a thing. Right. But it's a, like
1: that Venn diagram that we were yeah. talking about in the first episode, right?
0: Yeah. But generally, they're not going to rise to that level. So he says maybe they're not psychotic. So you approach them like you would. Any other psychiatric patient for their evaluation. But looking at the beliefs and looking at the subculture and having knowledge about that is going to be really, really important. So, Dr. Newman also focuses on what he feels is an adequate and helpful assessment tool. Thank goodness there's another assessment tool out there that interlocks with this type of evaluation, and it's called the Brown Assessment of Belief Scale. And it assesses delusions, especially in someone who just has delusions and really no other markers of a psychotic disorder. But it really digs deep into answering questions about what is their conviction about this belief? What's their perception of how others view their belief? How fixed are the ideas? I mean, is there any wiggle room when you try to challenge them a little bit? And what then does happen when you try to convince them? And maybe these ideas aren't true. Because that's you, as an evaluator, you know you're not going to change the ideas, but well, what's the hopefully. pushback like? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, well, hopefully
1: you understand your limitations in a situation like this, right? Yeah.
0: But it's about documenting, okay, what happens when I kind of go there emotionally, cognitively, and probably behaviorally in the room. So Dr. Newman goes on to say that perhaps sovereign citizens should be looked at how we view other individuals with deeply and chronically ingrained irrational racism. Because within that population, there is evidence of emotional malfunction, or in his words, there's something psychiatrically wrong with them, even if it's not delusional. So it's a comparative population that has more research.
1: I know, but isn't that a great way to explain it? Sure. He really does a great job. Again, I highly recommend this. is a very entertaining presentation. It's not yeah. just academic. So, well, please actually, watch he's it.
0: known for his presentations. Like he does, he teaches classes on how to put on good presentations. So it is a good one.
1: <laughs> oh, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, oh, that yeah. Thanks for adding that. <laughs> yeah. Well, he does it. And like I have to say, I was quite, I was quite jealous of the quality of his. The animated PowerPoint right. It's very the engaging for me with my my ADHD, although he does use Comic Sans font a lot. He which does. Is a, that's a huge no, no. Like, don't use Comic Sans.
0: I <laughs> oh, my gosh, here we go. <laughs> but I, I kind of thought I, like this is kind of cute. I like it. it. It almost has like a comic book feel to it, like with the animations. So I thought, is this? That's a really good
1: point. No, that that may have been a perspective a, a, an active choice. So, yeah, thank you. I or stand a corrected Dr.
0: to people that are like, never Comic Sans. He probably knows that. I was like, here it is.
1: Well, then I like him even more. So if the doing do it, just as a reaction. OK, all right, good. Thank you for that. Newman also goes on to point out some stats on interesting and somewhat problematic tendencies and belief systems and ideas that currently exist. Within the US, there's a problem, even if we rule out that there is no mental illness, we rule out the possibility of mental illness, because sovereign citizens are strongly asserting these objectively false beliefs, and they're acting out in increasingly escalating ways. And Newman goes on to point out some really interesting examples that in America in a 2013 poll, yes, it's a little bit out of date, but still Still very telling, and I wouldn't even be surprised at all if these numbers are now higher Oh yeah. if there was a similar poll being made. But 5% of the country here in the U.S. still thinks that Paul McCartney of the Beatles was killed or died in the 60s. And replaced. And replaced, right. 15% believe that there is governmental mind control. 14% believe in Bigfoot. 21% believe that there was a Roswell cover-up That was specific to aliens coming to Earth. Not that there was like a cover up of like, oh, we've developed a a new flight system and we need to do a diversion there. It's all aliens in that 21 percent. Six percent of people still believe that bin Laden is alive. Very interesting. And 28 percent kind of he has a 28 percent that expands. Into It kind of encompasses a selection of beliefs that include like the New World Order, the Illuminati, QAnon beliefs, lizard people in the tunnels under Los Angeles, (laughs) that the moon landing was faked and that chemtrails are poisoning the skies. So he does parse out that some of these people who have these extreme beliefs may well be psychotic, but that many of them are just individuals with a very high degree of psychological distress. Very, very interesting, or for a number of reasons that these individuals feel a strong need or a drive for quote unquote order in their lives and society and their thinking fallacies, their cognitive dissonances, their logical fallacies all sort of direct them in this area that then gives them a sense of order. It may be a wild and out there sense of order, but it does give them a sense of order which then, as crazy as the beliefs are, could then act as a mitigator of psychological distress. Some are very florid and indicative of severe mental illness, like Jared Loeffner and his beliefs. But many fly under the radar and still have a constellation of traits that would, with more scrutiny, definitely put them in the clinical and diagnostic range for consideration.
0: Yeah. So the research shows that people that gravitate towards conspiracy-type thinking share a few things in common. They tend to have less analytical thinking in general. They also rely more on what are called affective or emotional heuristics, meaning how we often rely on our emotions rather than concrete information when making decisions. So they're very emotionally driven and quickly dismiss some of the facts going on around them. Some of the subpopulation are also more quick to snap or they are less reflective and more reactive in their decision-making. We don't mean snap in terms of violence, (laughs) but just in decision-making skills. And then they also find in the research that people with higher levels of education are generally less likely to accept these sort of off or different explanations for the world and the world around them. But there are also often highly educated people that believe in conspiracy theories. And we know that there might be some neurobiological factors at play. I don't think there's a ton of robust research that has been able to do a lot of that biological work as far as brain mapping or what have you in these populations. It's usually more of like we've talked about looking at evaluations, diagnoses, survey work rather than necessarily lab work but it looks like this might be a factor as well. But what has been studied robustly are these different cognitive biases and they have different names and they're fascinating. So people who adhere to conspiracy beliefs not only have greater confirmation biases, but they gravitate towards online echo chambers, especially in today's day and age, right? So when we saw this in our last episode, we're kind of going through The timeline of how sovereign citizens have evolved. I mean, there was that point in the '90s where technology really hit, where they were all able to sort of find each other and get their messages out. There have been studies that have been done that people with very extreme beliefs will gravitate to homophilius groups. They don't want to be around people that have other ideas, so that is just absolutely confirmation bias at play, where they're not even letting these other perspectives into their world, and it's actually- it's it's part of the belief system, so it right. is perpetually this crazy cycle
1: so for conspiracy theorists, nothing happens by accident so and there's another issue here called the teleological fallacy. And teleological fallacy or a gravitation towards that is basically the same thing that drives creationist thinking, which is the idea that there must be an underlying force that is guiding the hand of the universe or that is guiding the hand of the government, which is a shadow government. And look, on a realistic scale... Unfortunately, the majority of populations have no interest in understanding how their government works because we don't emphasize that anymore. I come from a generation that actually it was part of our education. We had civics classes. We had government classes. You were required to graduate from high school with an understanding of how government works. That is gone. That's not a requirement. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of those are gone. But the idea is that there has to be this underlying force that is against me, which then that confirms, it supports my ideas that the things that are happening to me or the things that are happening in the world around me that I'm uncomfortable with are then being driven by somebody, the New World Order, the Mm -hmm. Illuminati, or LuLaRoe, (laughs) about how many (laughs) pairs of pants I have to sell, right? So... There's another one, intentionality bias, and that's the view that other people's behaviors are always intentional, which is not true. But that can actually be, intentionality bias is very common when we're evaluating and treating people with a history of trauma. Because if you have a history of trauma, one event or a long history of events, you tend not to trust the world around you, and you're always being hypervigilant as to what people's motivations are. Sure. And that's a, that's a defense mechanism, right? So people with high intentionality bias will tend to gravitate towards conspiracies, and they score much higher in this rubric that we're discussing. Conspiracy buffs have some really strange ideas about randomness and chance, And that is very fascinating. And it reminds me of going back to the Cecil Hotel documentary, right? There were some wild, wild synchronicities and coincidences in that. But Occam's razor kind of shows us that like, no, that's not likely that any of that happened. But we live in a world which has strange coincidences. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's just all they are. That's just a coincidence. And if you look
0: hard enough, you're certainly going to find those.
1: Right. So Newman did this other thing that kind of took a, a right hand turn out of nowhere, which I was not expecting at all in this population, but is just fascinating and goes back to maybe that foundational issue of an existing neurological presentation is that people who are conspiracy believers have a real problem recognizing patterns in visual media. He doesn't go on to speak so much about patterns in tendencies of society, government policies, educational, like big things. He's just talking about this in the most basic, studyable, observable phenomenon. And he uses as examples, Jackson Pollock paintings. So for anybody out there that doesn't know what a Jackson Pollock painting is, he was a really famous artist that just did these Unbelievable splatter paintings. And, you know, there are people that can look at them and go, well, my kid can do that in their finger painting class. But he really worked for years and years and years to develop this particular technique. And there is no pattern. It's just splatters that he liked. And maybe there was some intentionality, but there's no pattern. But people with a propensity towards conspiracy theories can see patterns in non-patterned media, but also fail to recognize it in things that definitely are trying to give a pattern, like op art. Op art is another wave of art that came out after Jackson Pollock, which used very dimensional And geographic designs, they're clearly patterns. They're like fractal patterns. Mm -hmm. And someone with a strong tendency towards conspiracy thinking can look at that and go, no, there's no pattern. It's like, no, that is literally the definition of a pattern.
0: Fascinating. I mean, it speaks to the wiring, right? I mean, yeah, clearly. I want way more research in that area.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately, these are the type of people like, you know, when we talk about all the wonderful information that's coming out about criminality and sociopathy and psychopathy from brain scans of inmates is that these are lifers and they've got nothing to lose. So, yeah, well, you can put me in a machine and scan my brain. That's fine. Who cares? People with delusional disorder or conspiracy theorists are not going to go anywhere near an MRI machine, I don't think.
0: No, absolutely not. Let's move in to some criminal cases and look at this crossover with criminality And sovereign citizens, we see the criminal repercussions for this movement kind of in two different areas, mostly one getting in trouble for not following tax or other legal societal laws or violence to perpetuate their beliefs, which tends to be against law enforcement, mostly, but also other government officials, which we highlighted in the last episode. Interestingly, again, we find that in general, sovereign citizens have very little criminal history. So, just like we see kind of the lack of mental illness, we really see this lack of criminal history. And they do not display criminogenic traits or violent behavior until they interact with government officials, where that conflict in their mind is setting them off. So, again, you know we talked about earlier they can kind of be living their lives with their strange beliefs and it's fine until you know you get them off their ranch or you send them a piece of paper that says they owe taxes and that's when it all gets stirred up now i mean it, this is in general there are cases and in the last episode when we started off with the example of the couple that killed the police officers and then had the the shootout in the Walmart I know at least he had quite a laundry list of a criminal history, drugs, small petty crimes, and then some violence. But in general, that is not what the research shows.
1: So, several prominent sovereign citizen influencers <laughs> I from the 2010s. It's interesting that sovereign citizens were influencers before they were influencers. Yes, they right? were. <laughs> they found themselves incarcerated before the decade concluded. And as an example, uh, James Timothy Turner is the leader of the Republic for the United States of America, also known as R small U.S.A. in Alabama. And he was sentenced to 18 years in 2013 for fraud and conspiracy related to his seminars that advocated for the fictitious financial instruments to settle taxes, mortgages, and debts. We went into that more in depth in our last episode. James T. McBride, the head of Ohio's Divine Province Sovereign Citizens Group, faced conviction in 2014 for orchestrating a $500,000 scheme involving the sale of fraudulent diplomatic identification documents, I guess, supposedly to grant buyers immunity from arrests and taxes. Amazing. Like, I have this thing that you printed on your inkjet computer, <laughs> and now that's going to get me out of my ticket for me well, yeah
0: over. they all hear like okay well diplomats can't be held responsible for crimes in other countries so let me just show this to them and they'll get out of my face
1: yeah yeah later in the same decade colorado sovereign figure bruce Dusett received a 38 year sentence after being found guilty on 34 charges including racketeering tax evasion and retaliation against judges Winston Shrout, a highly influential sovereign guru based in Oregon during the 2010s, was sentenced to 10 years for offenses related to tax evasion and the use of fictitious financial instruments.
0: Yes. And then, of course, we have the violence that has erupted during traffic stops. We're going to highlight one of those in a moment and other planned attacks. But first, I wanted to spotlight a situation that had the potential to end Very badly. I think it still can with how these folks are carrying on. But this is the Bundy family standoff that occurred in 2014. So in 2014, Ammon Bundy, along with his father, Cliven Bundy, I mean, something about the last name Bundy, right? And other family members orchestrated an armed standoff against the federal government in protest of its handling of years of unpaid grazing fees. Owed by Cliven. So they are cattle ranchers. They have had cattle, the same piece of land in their family for decades. And over a period of two decades, Cliven had consistently refused to remit the required fee for grazing his cattle on land owned by the Bureau of Land Management near Bunkerville, Nevada. So some of their land, of course, these cattle need wide areas to roam on, and some of that would be managed and owned by. BLM. He falsely contended that the federal government lacked the authority to oversee the land at all. When the Bureau of Land Management sought to remove Bundy's cattle, Cliven and his supporters obstructed their efforts, which led to a two week long armed, very, very tense standoff that included hundreds of other sovereign citizens who had heard their calls for support and came from around the country to show up to fight the government if they needed to. Consequently, the Bureau of Land Management's initiative was halted. And in 2016, Clive Ammon and Ryan Bundy, along with two other supporters, were eventually arrested on 16 felony charges arising from the standoff. However, after an extended legal process, the charges were dismissed and the Bundys faced no legal repercussions. Remarkably. To this day, the grazing fees remain unpaid. So eventually, at the end of the standoff, and I have seen an hours long presentation on this, the feds were like, well, "We need to deescalate this and just figure this out, you know, more smartly."
1: They didn't want it to be another Waco or Ruby Ridge, right? Yeah. that's exactly why, and that's infuriating. I mean, I, it I understand it, and that because I don't want people to lose their lives, even pieces of work like the the Bundy family but the idea that our law enforcement is restrained from addressing issues that are potentially dangerous mm-hmm. just because there's a history of something else being handled poorly yeah. is just not the way to move forward unfortunately that's the way big organizations work across across the world that's like it's that's, that's sure. just built within the system and it's frustrating for those of us that I would say for me personally, it's frustrating aside from being a professional is that, you know, I, (laughs) what's the, the meme? there was a really great meme where someone was talking about coming from a history of trauma, coming from a history of anxiety and always, you know, their, their defense mechanism throughout their life was to be a people pleaser and to also just follow the rules to, you know, really to really follow the rules. And one of them tweeted, have you ever got that feeling where you're walking out of a Walmart and you think. Did I just steal a television? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You're constantly questioning yourself. Where if you see police lights in the back, you're like, what did I do? What did, did I do wrong? Do I have did dead I run body a in light? My did trunk? I oh my God, did I hide did I kill somebody? <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. But there yeah. are those of us in the world that sort of had that level of personal hypervigilance about our role in society. And then there are others who are just completely driven by this high level of narcissism yeah. and entitlement that is delusionish, delusion-esque about what you're able to do. The guy and his family have been stealing millions of dollars of resources from other taxpayers. That's exactly what they've been doing because Bureau of Land Management still has to go out and manage that land and the destruction from the cattle, which is why there are rules like that. Feed your cattle on your property rather than destroying what's supposed to be a public resource for the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. So soon after their charges were dropped, Ammon Bundy spearheaded an armed occupation of Oregon's Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in solidarity with two ranchers convicted of setting fires on federal land. I wish we had time to unpack that, but
0: that's, yeah, this was that's, another huge step. It was
1: too. so huge, and there was some really darkly funny stuff about it that got posted because they're they're so clueless. The things that they were posting on social media just made right. them look like complete assholes. But this 40-day occupation drew support from a huge range of anti-government, and other right-wing extremists. Ammon and his brother Ryan, along with 24 others, were apprehended. Ammon faced charges such as assault on federal officers, obstruction of justice, and conspiracy. But ultimately, the case concluded in a mistrial in 2018, offering Ammon the opportunity to continue organizing without any consequences. Mm -hmm. It's insane to me. Mm -hmm. Following these actions and having evaded legal repercussions, Bundy and his newly established People's Rights Network, participated in numerous protests concerning COVID-19-related mandates and closures throughout 2020. A significant incident occurred on August 24, 2020, when Bundy and his armed supporters occupied the Idaho State Capitol Auditorium during a special session to protest COVID-19 mandates. The occupation concluded with the arrest of Bundy and three others on trespassing charges. And despite attempting to reenter the Capitol the next day, Bundy was arrested once again. Why was he let out on the first charge the day before? But he was subsequently found guilty of one count of trespassing and one count of delaying an officer, resulting in a sentence of one year of probation and a monetary fine. I wonder if he's paid that monetary fine. (laughs) Why (laughs) do they keep letting this guy? Get away with this shit! It's infuriating. Yeah, absolutely infuriating. If
0: a misdemeanor trespassing was all they could book him on, he would absolutely just be out after processing. So yeah, with a citation. Yeah, yeah exactly. So established in March 2020, the People's Rights Network, also recognized as the People's Rights Initiative, or just People's Rights. It operates as a far-right anti-government activist network under the leadership of this extremist, Ammon Bundy. And advocating for assertive and disruptive strategies, the People's Rights Movement confronts individuals they perceive to be violating their rights. They engage in standoffs, harassing opponents, issuing threats, disrupting public events, imposing a threat to law enforcement and public safety. The network operates reactively, mobilizing in response to perceived threats or rights violations, either upon request from its members or on behalf of non-members believed to require immediate help to defend their rights. Although People's Rights asserts the existence of active chapters nationwide, the majority of its activities are really concentrated in Idaho. The group frequently collaborates with members from various other groups that are just lovely, including militias, CSPOA, the Oath Keepers, Sovereign Citizens, and Patriot Prayer, among others. Notably, some People's Rights members are simultaneously affiliated with these other extremist groups and then kind of bounce back and forth. Members of People's Rights have faced arrests for a wide array of crimes, with several individuals apprehended for their involvement in guess what? The January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. This faction really ties into this notion of vicarious grievance, where Bundy and his people really make someone else's suffering a part of his ideology. And then, you know, he's going to be the rescuer and take action on their behalf, So, I think that's an interesting piece because it it kind of feels like along the pathway to violence when someone says, Oh, nope, I'm the only one that can make a difference and an impact about this. So, it's
1: yeah, narcissistic extension, party (laughs) of one. That's exactly (laughs) what it is. And then we have an example that is really talked about prominently in this discussion of sovereign citizens that occurred in west memphis arkansas and that involved law enforcement officers brandon pottert who was the son of the current police chief and bill evans and they were integral very valuable members of the west memphis police department's drug interdiction team and their responsibility as part of that team was to intercept the constant influx of narcotics passing through their town along Interstate 40, which is a very busy highway. While on duty, Evans noticed that a white minivan displaying uncommon Ohio license plates, and he had to react. I mean, they were probably made of cardboard, as most of these uh, plates are. Reacting very quickly, he pulled the van over at the exit near the mile marker 275, and then immediately, and due to protocol, requested backup from his partner.
0: So within the white minivan, the 16-year-old son remained in the passenger seat at first while his father, a 45-year-old man, engaged in a heated exchange with the officers in front of the police SUV. So this is all caught on dash cam from the police officer's vehicle, and they are in between the police officer's SUV and sort of positioned at the back of the white minivan. A scuffle ensues resulting in the older suspect, pushing Officer Evans into a roadside ditch. Simultaneously, the 16-year-old swiftly emerges from the minivan with a loaded AK-47, pointing it at Officer Evans. Despite the officer placing one hand on his pistol and raising the other in a gesture signaling stop, the boy shoots Evans multiple times before redirecting his attention to Officer Potter. Taking cover behind the police vehicle, Potter, who managed to fire his pistol seven times, found himself outgunned as the police vehicle provided very limited protection against the assault rifle. The harrowing scene was witnessed by a package delivery man who had stopped his truck after exiting the highway at marker 275. He promptly dialed 911, telling them, officer down, officer down. And while Potter attempted to defend himself, the 16-year-old pursued him around the police SUV, firing multiple shots into the back of his head before returning to Evans in the ditch and firing at him again. The father and son killers then hastily retreated into the minivan, continuing to shoot at the incapacitated officers as they drove away. I've seen this dash cam video. It's one of the most violent, senseless things I've ever seen. But it does not end there.
1: Right. So Brandon Potter sustained 11 gunshot wounds and he died at the scene while Evans was struck by 14 rounds and passed away later at a hospital. And over the next 90 minutes, West Memphis has experienced a huge surge of activity. Highways were shut down. Law enforcement personnel from various agencies around the area converged right to that nexus of activity in search of the white minivan with the strange Ohio plates. And then concerned citizens began reporting sightings, some helpful, some not so helpful. The van was then observed finally at a local country club, a commercial truck terminal and an apartment building. And one witness mentioned that the drivers had sought directions to the nearest Walmart. So there's a lot more ammo and guns available at a Walmart, right? Yeah, I think that's...
0: I think that's the nexus that we saw with that other case is if they can get to a Walmart. They have all the guns and ammo they need for a shoot. Yeah.
1: Or at least they believe they can shoot their way in and get it. You know, right. So, I mean, that's the idea that they think they're going to have access to it. That is very interesting. Surveillance footage from the Walmart parking lot revealed that the son entered the store to make a purchase while his father removed license plates from the vehicle. The first To spot the van now at this point in time was an Arkansas wildlife officer who intentionally collided with the van to prevent its escape. And despite the killers firing more than a dozen rounds at the officer's truck, he miraculously avoided being hit. And as law enforcement closed in on the scene, a chaotic shootout ensued, resulting in two additional officers sustaining injuries before both of the individuals were fatally shot. Crittenden County Sheriff Dick Busby suffered a single gunshot wound to his shoulder, while W. A. Rend, West Memphis's chief of enforcement, sustained multiple gunshots to the abdomen. Fortunately, both of these officers survived their injuries.
0: Yeah, so there's surveillance footage from the Walmart of the parking lot of all this taking place. You know, the vehicles trying to box them in, and then the shootout. I don't know if that's available publicly. Probably. YouTube has everything on it. But this case raised serious questions about the mental state of individuals associated with the sovereign citizen movement. This father-son duo traveled the U.S. as what they called themselves redemption consultants. So they are sovereign citizens, allegedly experts in their ability to help other wannabe sovereign citizens to cash in on their... Birth certificates, which are thought to be worth up to a billion dollars. Again, remember we talked about last time kind of the um, straw man and the paper version of you, and that you're collateral for the US government. um, They would do all of these seminars that would teach how to potentially get this money back. There were several very successful redemption consultants, meaning they were good at giving their seminars, but they were not successful as in what they were promising. Shocker.
1: Right. But there's other individuals, these redemption consultants, who actually made a lot of money grifting yep. off the people that came to their seminars. This father-son duo were not, and there's a lot of, con- not controversy, but there's a lot of observation that likely with the father's drug history, that there was a lot of drugs being used in the commission of this or prior to it and also some of the information that we have now indicates that the son who was 16 at the time had a long history of emotional and behavioral disturbances throughout his childhood so now who knows what that came from maybe there was a lot of stuff going on in the family dynamic but there also might have been some diagnosable mental illness in that as well but look their mission is to easier formulate an understanding when we view all of this that we've been discussing for the last few hours through a radicalization lens. And the father's journey into extremism began with a personal tragedy. This the this case that we're talking about. He lost one of his children to SIDS, which is sudden infant death syndrome. And something broke in him or something got turned on or a fire was lit when it was insisted upon that the child be given an autopsy. Now, that is very threatening to parents, I understand. And SIDS is not just one thing. SIDS is like actually a huge spectrum of issues that can cause crib death or Mm -hmm. a sudden uh, death of an infant. But, you know, if someone is then looked at like, well, what did you do to contribute to your child's death? And we're going to take your infant child's body and we're going to violate it. I mean, that's the way it can be perceived by an individual, right? He had this big of a reaction to it and it escalated because of the requirement for this. So it's still debated today. I mean, this is a case that is, it's a turning point and an understanding for sovereign citizens. It's still being pulled apart. But what they do know about his background is that he did find his way through his grief and anger, into discovering a group called the Dorian Group. And that was an organization that was similar to another influencer, Sean David Morton's. And it offered seminars on debt relief and freedom from government control and, quote unquote, tyranny. Initially, he supported the Dorian Group fervently, but his legal troubles led him to break away and then what happens in the religious communities is like, well, I don't like the way this preacher's talking and I want to have my own spin on it. So I'm going to be the reverend and start my own church. That's very common, more in the U.S. than around the world, but it's very common here in the U.S. And this is what this individual did. His approach was significantly different in that he quickly veered directly into advocating for extreme violence including the killing of IRS agents. And his violent rhetoric attracted the attention of the FBI and his encounters with law enforcement were just ramping up prior to this terrible, terrible, tragic incident.
0: Yeah, awful. And as you mentioned before, the 16-year-old in this case clearly shared his father's anti-government sentiments. And it is noted in the history, which we get out of the trial materials, that even as a child, He displayed behavioral issues and defiance towards authority figures, which if his dad was modeling that, then yeah, obviously, totally to be expected.
1: It's very interesting to me because there's a wonderful, wonderful writer on Quora, and I I love Quora, but there's a statistician who talks about how you can debunk conspiracy theories actually quite easily just using statistics because Mm. he goes into... And he uses an example of, you know, like New World Order or government covered ups or even Area 51. And he says, in order to really propagate the level of this sort of horror movie indication of conspiracy theories, you would have to have a huge amount of people that absolutely will not tell anyone else that you have to have several thousand people that, absolutely cannot share any information and that is impossible it that does happened. not happen and he even proves like the larger the group gets yeah the more likely that information is going to leak now that doesn't say that there can't be propaganda and counter propaganda that goes out for social engineering that absolutely right. does happen right. but when it gets to the level of these types of movements their lack of critical thinking skills And their lack of analytical thinking seems to be like a huge driver Mm -hmm. for this type of action.
0: Yeah, certainly. Well, we're almost towards the end. Let's talk about some entertainment depictions of this. There's really only one that I knew of from what I watch. And it was a storyline in the TV show Bosch, which was you know, kind of throughout season six a little bit, but I think most prominently featured in episode two, which is called Good People on Both Sides. But the detectives, not Bosch necessarily, he's kind of working something else, but he helps out because the detectives are tracking a group of sovereign citizens that are responsible for stealing some hazardous materials for bomb making. And so, Bosch kind of goes up to the property where they're going to serve some paperwork. It's it's a little bit of a ruse. They're talking about like child custody stuff. But the FBI is across the street kind of behind. Bosch is like, let me talk to them. And, you know, he's very like respectful to the sovereign citizen guy that he's talking to. And like, yeah, this is bullshit. But like your ex-wife is taking you back to court And then the guy's kind of like looking over his shoulder, kind of freaking out. Well, who are those people over there? And he's like, oh, the feds, like, they want to talk to you too, but I'm going to keep them away. And then his brother comes home, who's like carrying a bag of groceries. And when they ask for ID from him, like, hey, do you live here too? Let me, let me see your ID. He says, I'm a free man to the land, not some number on a card. (laughs) So they, they did some good research. It was good. And then, of course, there's a scuffle and he pulls a a gun out of the grocery bag and it turns into this big shootout when the feds kind of step onto their property but they make a big deal about like them not coming onto their property
1: was it a tv grocery bag with like a baguette and the carrots with the green still on them
0: (laughs) as if sovereign citizens eat that no i don't know
1: (laughs) yeah sovereign citizens love french bread yes for some reason i'm not making that up folks please don't quote me (laughs) <laughs>
0: cans of Hormel chili sticking out. No. Yeah. But we have mentioned our friend Javier's podcast a little bit. Do you want to sort of recap that and not give it away? But
1: I don't want to give it away. All I want to do is direct all of our listeners. If you are not familiar with Javier Leva, we're talking about one of the best content producers in the genre. Just really. I mean, the guy has like he is wearing so many different hats in his creation of media and and he's also just easy to listen to and he's fun and he's so enthusiastic and, and so engaged in whatever he's studying. And he does a really great overview, the sovereign citizen movement, and then also gives a really hilarious and disturbing account of, you know, if you're a sovereign citizen and you don't believe in the government and you don't go to you don't go to no damn doctors. Who do you go to? You go to a sovereign citizen doctor who also calls himself the naked sovereign citizen surgeon. Got some good alliteration there. So he performs all of his services while naked. Because he's a nudist. It's disturbing.
0: And worked in the porn industry. And, you know, all those things kind of go together.
1: (laughs) Yeah, because I just love all that, you know exposed skin and dead DNA and hair floating around while you're excising a a tumor. That just makes so much sense.
0: Yeah. So I'll I'll link this in the show notes as well. It's a two-part series. He does an introductory episode just covering what we've covered very concisely and in an entertaining way. And then he devotes a whole episode talking about the naked sovereign surgeon. And he actually talks to some FBI agents, some that were there working the Bundy standoff, as well as the agents that were working this so-called surgeon case. So really, but like the frustration really comes through of like, there's some things we can't get this person on. And it's, you know, the way that the sovereigns look for their loopholes, the feds almost have to look for loopholes as well, because they've done so much of their legal research. They know how to get around a lot of stuff.
1: Yeah. Or they just keep argle, bargle, bargle, bargle Uh, talking until they confuse their way or they, you know, what is it if you can't dazzle them with your brilliance, then baffle them with your bullshit. That seems to be a a driving factor here.
0: Yeah. So in in closing, I just want to give a shout out to our friend Jeff for sharing some videos and to Kevin Smith. He has been my instructor for several amazing threat assessment courses, including this great class that he teaches on sovereign citizens. Um, I'll share with you when the next one is. He does them and they're free. He does them for law enforcement. They're fantastic, but all usually around in the California area. Yeah, there we are. We finally did it. Another two-parter too. We're starting out this year with (laughs) two-parters. And we had another one kind of penned out on the whiteboard that I'm like, we might need a break before we get to that (laughs) um, two-parter, but- All right, everyone. Thanks for hanging in there with us. We hope this was interesting and entertaining and probably sent you down some Reddit rabbit holes. But with that, we'll see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Thanks, guys. Bye, folks. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Ear Cult Productions.
1: The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons Attribution License. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube.
0: All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com.
1: Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements.
0: Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash L.A. Not Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad free listening experience. And you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way.
1: Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye folks.